Hey everyone, welcome to MCU Fan Show episode 238. My name is Sean Gerber. In a moment, I'll be joined by Paul Herman for our spoiler review of Hawkeye episode 6. So this is Christmas, a Kevin Feige production directed by Reese Thomas, written by Jonathan Igla and Elisa Clement, and the series was created for television by Jonathan Igla. Now, before we start talking about the finale of Hawkeye, I want to let you know where you can hear us talk about the beginning, the premiere of The Book of Boba Fett. It's almost here. It's almost December 29th when the series launches on Disney+. And once it's launched, we will begin our spoiler review series for The Book of Boba Fett. That's going to be on Fanshow Plus, a podcast that is available to premium subscribers at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or on Apple Podcasts. If you just search for the MCU Fanshow channel or search for Fanshow Plus, you can find it there and subscribe so you can get those episodes. And then make sure you're following us in all those other places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're enjoying the show, we would greatly appreciate a rating and review from you over on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much to everyone who has already done so. We really do appreciate it. And now on with our show. How you doing, Paul Herman? I am doing very well. Had a great Christmas. Got some Marvel stuff, and uh, you know, yeah, doing pretty good. We had we had a great last couple of weeks of Marvel goodness of MCU anyway, as far as the Hawkeye and No Way Home, and yeah, it's a you know got some got some graphic novels. Very happy. Got the last two uh, uh, Marvel epic collections of the Stanley Jack Kirby run that I've been wanting to uh, get, and I, now that I have them, I will now start my uh, epic read of that series. I've read you know a chunk of that, but not all of it, and so it's a hundred issues of Fantastic Four comic books that Stanley and Jack Kirby did. So over a hundred issues, I think. I think annuals are in there as well. So very excited because you know the Fantastic Four are coming. They so are. I got to you know, get brushed up on it. I've read plenty of Fantastic Four, but I haven't read a ton of the OG uh, original comic books as far as like, you know, the whole run. So now mm-hmm. that I have uh, all of them and we're going to read them because, I, you know, I don't read omnibuses anymore because they're just too big. I don't like them. So give me the epic collections. They're great. Yeah, they're not as comfortable to read. Yeah. Certainly not. Yeah. They're uh, it's it's a lot. It's a workout. And that's just not it, the kind of thing yeah. I do these days. Exactly. But uh, I'm glad you're doing well and hope everyone is having a happy and safe holiday season out there as well. It's been great having so many of you with us listening throughout this entire year as we've had so much to enjoy and celebrate here on the podcast. We've done so many of these spoiler reviews now. I think this is the 41st of the year. This is the 40th for made by Marvel Studios content between series and movies. But then we also did one for Venom, Let There Be Carnage. And I think back when we were doing spoiler reviews of Marvel Studios movies and non-Marvel Studios, but still Marvel movies, maybe we had like six or seven in a year, something like that would have probably been the record. I'd have to go back and look at it. Nowhere near 41 as we have had this year. And these past few weeks, as you mentioned a moment ago, very emblematic and a good representation of what this year has been like for us as Marvel fans and that there has been so much that we have been treated to, so much that we have had the opportunity to enjoy. And Marvel Studios really ending the year on an, on a high note, on a couple of high notes between Spider-Man No Way Home and this Hawkeye series, which has now come to a close, at least for 
this season. We will see where it goes from here. But I'm very excited to talk about this last episode, so let's go ahead and let's get into it. We start by meeting Kingpin, and I like that the episode started this way because the series has been teasing him all along, and then they showed him in picture form at the very end to close out last week's episode. So it was great to just get right into it. We know he's here now. Vincent D'Onofrio as Wilson Fisk slash Kingpin has arrived in the MCU proper. So why wait? Let's go ahead and open with that being our first scene. And it is the scene that we got a glimpse of in that picture form, in that photo that we saw at the end of last week's episode. We get, and it provides us a summary of how Eleanor ever got involved with Kingpin in the first place. Eleanor got involved, Eleanor Bishop, that is, Vera Farmiga, got involved because her husband owed a debt to Wilson Fisk at the time of her husband's death. She was able to repay that debt tenfold and make a lot of money for herself in the process. She says she handled Armand, meaning she killed Armand or had him killed, like Kingpin asked, and now she wants out. But you don't really get to walk away from Wilson Fisk. But Eleanor wants to be with her daughter. And if Kingpin has any thoughts of doing anything bad to her, and Eleanor assumes correctly that Kingpin would have thoughts of doing something bad to her, Eleanor wants him to know that she has an insurance policy. We don't really see that put to use in this episode, but she talks about having documents, photos, whatever. She has evidence on Wilson Fisk and his illegal activities. I don't know if she's seen Daredevil, but we have, and whether it's official MCU canon or not, it doesn't really matter how much documentation you have on Wilson Fisk. He's been to prison before. He always seems to get out, so this time would probably be no different, which is why her threat doesn't really land with Kingpin anyway. Uh, But Kingpin is willing to forgive this threat in the spirit of the holidays. I love that line of why he would be, that's why he's willing to do her a solid and forgive this threat that she's just made. Um, if he, if she would just reconsider, but Eleanor has made up her mind and this scene, I mean, oh, Kate and, and Clint were watching on a video feed and we'll talk about that in a moment, but this opening with Kingpin, I thought was really great, Paul, because it showed Vincent D'Onofrio just like he walked out of the, the season finale of the season three finale of Daredevil and right into this. And he filled that suit. He filled those shoes, but now has a cane to go with uh, to go with all of it. He filled it to perfection, and he showed why fans have wanted him back in this role for such a long time. Everything from the voice, his speaking cadence, the the twitching as he's kind of listening, and it's almost like he's suppressing his anger as he's listening yeah. to Eleanor and her wanting to to go out to leave the business to uh, no longer be employed by him or work for him. Everything about it was just as good as I remember Vincent D'Onofrio being as this character. Yeah, I it was great the fact they went right to him, and I, I don't think that was a. I think that was obviously very intentional. I think they knew they if they were going to do this, they, you know, and have a cliffhanger, right. they had to go right to it. There, there's no messing around with that, and I'm glad they did. And you're right, it, it felt very natural having Vincent D'Onofrio play Kingpin right away. I love the cane. The cane's so classic Kingpin that, and I'm not sure Frank Miller uh, back in the day when he when he because for those who don't know maybe that Frank Miller back in the 80s when he started writing the Daredevil series that you know very critically acclaimed, he kind of made the Kingpin a Daredevil comic uh, villain, and that became like the 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 main arch villain basically back then. And I'm not sure if he had the cane as much, but he but the cane was definitely introduced by the John Romita back in the day. 
and it, it, it wasn't really prevalent in the Daredevil series as far as I remember. Um, it's been a while since I've rewatched it, but uh, I don't remember it being there. And it, seeing the cane definitely felt more classic John Romita, you know, Stanley Kingpin, which is great. And seeing them, you know, talk, but I think what's cool, like you said too, Sean, that it, all of all the mannerisms that you wanted there, you know, all like the, the cadence, the the imposing uh, threat that Kingpin is. Like I love the the, the camera angle. It's right on Eleanor straight ahead, right? But when Kingpin's talking to her, it's a, like he's almost like looking down at it, like the camera's up below him. So I love the the that whole idea that you're, you're emphasizing the 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 essence of of what Kingpin is. He's a massive figure. He's dominating the conversation. So it's like almost like she's beneath him in that way again, mm-hmm. because he's the head honcho. He's the Kingpin. So it was again clever and then just having that kind of uh, camera angles. I thought was really interesting. Uh, yeah, it was perfect. It was a great. It felt very natural having it come on to the screen, uh, you know, from the Daredevil season and into this. It, it felt very seamless to me. And seeing two great actors, you know, going off each other was great too. I mean, you know, so it was, it was, I, I, I was for me, it was great. I loved seeing it. So yeah, it was great to have Kingpin back in the where he belongs in the MCU. That's exactly right. And Kate and Clint were watching this via the video feed that had been supplied by Yelena. And Clint knows exactly what this conversation means, that Kate's mom is going to need their help. Kate says that it's her mess to clean up and that Clint should just go be with his family. And Clint says to her, Kate, you're my partner. Your mess is my mess. I'm not going anywhere until this is finished. And what a moment this was. I love this so much because it's Clint acknowledging what their relationship is and finally acknowledging it to be exactly what Kate has wanted it to be, that they are partners. And right. he's finally giving this to Kate and saying this to the Kate, saying this to Kate at the time that it means the most to her and at the time that she needs it the most. She needs a partner right now because her mom is in danger. And Haley Steinfeld, to her credit, I mean, Jeremy Renner, obviously amazing as Clint Barton, and, and Haley Steinfeld continues to be just note perfect as uh, as Kate Bishop and the way she plays this moment is so perfect because it shows with her facial expression she's conveying exactly how much it means to Kate but she's not overplaying it to the point where Kate gets to be super pumped up and happy she's moved by what Clint Barton has said but that doesn't necessarily make her happy because she can't be her mom just admitted to a murder killing Armand And her mom is also in immediate danger. So it's a difficult moment for Kate and a very complex moment for Kate, but she can't help but be moved by what Clint says. So the way Haley Steinfeld played it, I thought was just spot on. Yeah, I, this was a great acknowledgement from from Clint to basically saying that, you know, he's accepting the fact that, you know, Kate Bishop is a legitimate, you know, person to partner with and also, you know, maybe to train as we get later on. So it was a good... Once I think once he I think it's almost like once Clint saw that Kingpin was involved with 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 her mom, I think he realized that, you know, there's maybe at that point, you know, he already thought these things, you know, going into this conversation. But now with the Kingpin solidifying that and the fact she's going to do this regardless. And then now it's made it even more personal for her that he realizes now, like, you know, we have the partner here and this is, you know, she's going to be involved in this, whether I like it or not. So I might as well right. make her my partner because we've already made a good team. We've already established that. So it's time to you know, come clean with it. I feel like that's where I I, was, yeah. I came across with the, uh, the show. Well, and I also think that she already was his partner and that was just something that he didn't want to 
admit. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. that would come with a lot of a lot of complexity, right? Because Natasha was certainly somebody who Clint viewed as a partner and as a very dear friend, and he lost her. And I, I think the more Clint acknowledges what Kate means to him, the more risk is involved in him having a partnership with Kate because it would hurt that much more if he lost her and he knows that that's part of it. At the same time, he doesn't want her to go through all of the hurt and loss that he's been through. So the closer she is to him, if he doesn't make it, then that's a very difficult loss for Kate. And so much of you know, loss just comes with the territory, as Clint explains to her, in a really great back and forth that we'll get to uh, very soon in this episode. But I, I think for Clint, there's a lot of reasons why he didn't want to acknowledge this for Kate and, and what their relationship is, what their dynamic is. But in this moment, I think he let it out because he's just being honest with her, honest with himself, uh, but also coming through and, and showing her that he's giving her exactly the support that she really needs in this moment. And that's what made the moment uh, in the series so great or in this episode. Then we cut to a scene between Maya Lopez and Kingpin. So Kingpin's getting a lot of action in the early going of this episode which I agree with what you were saying before. It's just the kind of thing they had to do, because guess what? If you wait until the very last episode to introduce a major yeah. character or the last second of your second to last episode to confirm that this character is here, you're putting a lot of work in there for yourself for the finale. And so in order to get started, it's better to just get started as early as you can. And that's what they're doing in this episode. So Maya has to meet with Kingpin and she's meeting with him now knowing that this person who's put himself forward as family to her is also the guy who ended up, who ultimately ordered her father's murder and effectively is the one who, amongst the people who murdered her father. Meanwhile, Kingpin is lecturing her about keeping a low profile and acting like her father meant so much to all of us, including me, the whole group. It's not just that you lost your dad and that's sad for you. It's sad for all of us, even though I'm the guy who had him killed. Uh, so Kingpin acting like her father meant something to him. And Maya saying that she's ready to stop chasing ghosts. She's ready to give up her pursuit of the Ronin and everything else. And Kingpin just goes into that emotional manipulator territory that Vincent D'Onofrio is so good at when yeah. he starts talking about how Maya's father would have wanted her to move on and he'd be so proud of her for all this stuff. And Maya asks for a couple days off and he agrees to that and saying, oh, I think that's best and gives her an I love you, which she returns. And I don't think it's really sincere on either side at this point. Um, and then Kingpin, as soon as she leaves, Kingpin tells Kazi that Eleanor Bishop and Maya Lopez need to go. We're talking about how they're in their each in their own way betraying him. So what will we do about it? The people need to be reminded that this city belongs to me. And so this scene, coupled with the one that started this episode, these first two scenes combined to be, I think, just a, a highlight reel of why people have loved Vincent D'Onofrio as Kingpin so much and why he was such a great antagonist on Daredevil and people wanted mm -hmm. him in the MCU proper so badly because he is very, very chilling. He's very intimidating as an antagonist, as a villain. And yet in his own weird, warped way, he's kind of warm. You want to believe it when he says nice things about loving her father, loving Maya, and they're all a family and all that stuff. You want to believe that he means it when he says those things, but 
you know that it, you just know that it's not true, even though I'll bet there's a, a big part of Wilson Fisk, and this is part of Vincent D'Onofrio's performance that I've always loved, and it shines through here. I think Wilson Fisk is able to convince himself that he means these things that he says, despite yeah. the fact that he is, at a moment's notice, willing to kill each and every person he quote-unquote loves. So he believes in his mind, in his heart, that he loves these people, even though the second they fail to do exactly as he's ordered, he's willing to abandon that love and go ahead and kill them. And that just shows that, and that's what lets you know as a viewer that deep down, this man is rotten all the way to his core because he doesn't really have, he wants to believe that he has some sort of heightened sense of ju- uh, of justice and maybe it's bent on it's based on some bent type of moral compass that still is partly some kind of moral code like it's not that he's immoral he has a different moral code but it's a moral code nonetheless and that's why everything that he does is okay but it's not okay he's just a greedy sociopath but it's the it's the 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 fake sincerity or the deceptive sincerity underneath all of or on top of that masks the true insincerity underneath it all that makes his performance so great. Yeah. And I think that's a great characterization that the MCU and the Netflix shows have done a great job of because, and obviously in the comic books, he's a very more maniacal, you know, calculating villain. There's not a lot of heart in him besides his, his passion for his, for his wife. And, and basically, um, and that is something that, uh, we don't really see that that side of what you're talking about that where he almost is convincing himself that he's doing well, he's doing good. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, it, in the comic books, he's obviously just an evil dude. He's just, yeah. he's a kingpin of crime. I do like the fact, and Vincent D'Onofrio, and I do like the fact what you said that he's done a great job in both the TV series and in this it's a continuation of giving that idea of there's there he's kingpin thinks he's doing the right thing. He mm-hmm. thinks he's he, he not the right thing, but it's almost like he convinces himself he cares so much that he has to do it. it it's it, like you said, like, it's a great point. Like he, it's almost like he's convincing himself that, you know, this is for the greater good of what he needs to do. You know, and it's not like evil, but it's good, you know, because this, this means, means that. So yeah, I, I definitely agree with that, that there's a, a better, I think a better characterization of least under of, of, of Kingpin in the MCU in some ways than in the comic books. Uh, this scene was interesting because I thought that when Echo and, and, and Kingpin are talking, it was weird to see. I will say it was a little uh, abrasive, a little bit for me to see Kingpin be so affectionate to someone besides Vanessa, because in the comic, you know, not the comic book, excuse me, excuse me, the Netflix show, he's so like. Rrr. You know, and there's not really a lot of people he cares about. Even Wesley, he doesn't right. really give, you know, show that much appreciation for. And that's like his, you know, basically his like borderline son at that point um, or brother, if you want. Uh, but it was weird to see him be a little more affectionate. And that was a little strange when you when you put in the combination of his Hawaiian shirt underneath the, the white coat. It was a little I was like, this is a little weird to me. Um, I know there was some criticism of the, the Hawaiian shirt, which is comic book accurate. Is, it is from what I understand. From what I understand, it's actually a Vincent D'Onofrio idea. He liked the the look from the, right. the Amazing Spider-Man graphic novel family business, uh, which I have, which ironically I bought um, at the Emerald City Comic Con a few weeks ago and I got it for like five bucks. And I'm like, okay, cool. I got picked this up, and then uh, I had I didn't have it. And then you see, I see him wearing. I'm like, oh, it's from that graphic novel. Oh, weird. Um, but 
like you said, as soon as she leaves, he turns right back into Kingpin, which is great. Great performance by Vincent D'Onofrio. Right. I will also want to add, I thought it was hilarious when he, and also super cool, he actually said the word Avengers. Yes. Or Avenger. He goes, yeah. he goes, yeah, an I'm Avenger. an Avenger. Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh. I'm like, oh, he actually said it. He said the word. Right. He, he acknowledges the Avengers. This is great. I mean, it as as again, as a longtime fan of the Netflix series, I that was that to me cemented him into the MCU proper. It was when he said Avenger and, and actually referencing to Hawkeye. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. It's not just the the incident, the New York incident, Sean. It's the actual, you know, he's referencing an Avenger now. So that was that right. was really uh rewarding for me as a, as a, as a Daredevil fan. So, uh, that was great. That was a great, again, I love the turn at the very end of the conversation, but to me, when he said Avenger, he acknowledged Clint as an Avenger. I'm like, okay, we're, we're in, we're in the MCU now, Sean, we're here. I just loved how normal it sounded to hear him say yes, it. yes, exactly. And that it was just such a matter of fact type of thing. And I'm trying to remember if they ever used the word Avenger or Avengers in the Daredevil series. I know there were references to them and not just the incident. Magic Hammer and Iron Man. Right. Yeah, that was Wesley, right? Talking about, uh, I think he was the one who made the Magic Hammer reference for Thor. But I I think it was more along those lines of talking around it as opposed to as opposed to engaging with and maybe somebody said Avenger or Avengers and I'm just not remembering. And if so, my bad. But um, yeah, I, I felt like it felt like most of the time in the Netflix series, they were talking around that stuff rather than really engaging with it directly. Although I know mm-hmm. I think it was in Jessica Jones, one of those seasons where I think there was a kid who had like a Captain America action figure. So there were some pretty direct things, but a lot of it was very indirect and just kind of skirting around uh, whatever it was with these characters and, and their status as Avengers and, and all of that stuff. But I also, while we're talking about performances here and crediting Vincent D'Onofrio, to her credit, Alakwa Cox is right there with him as Maya Lopez. And I love the way that she plays this scene because she's doing her best to play it cool. She knows that her life depends on that. Like if she goes in too hot, if she attacks him, then she's going to kill Then he's just going to kill her right then and there. But even though she has to play it cool, it's impossible for her to completely hide her contempt. And Wilson Fisk can detect it. He can feel it, even if she's not showing it and she's returning the I love you. And and maybe there's some part of that that's still sincere, although I I don't know how much. Um, But really, she's going up against and, and standing across from this man who is saying he loves her, saying he loved her father but he betrayed her and betrayed her father in the worst possible way. And as she knows, he can say he loves me, but this guy would kill me without hesitation as he did my father. And all of those are things that Maya has to deal with in her head in this scene while trying to keep her cool. And I think Alakwa Cox did a really good job of portraying that. And then we get a a really spectacular scene and something that I found very moving in a scene between Kate and Clint. I mean, it starts on the subway where they're going to have to make, they decide they're going to need to make some trick arrows and we get a montage of different arrows that they're making, including a cool pim arrow that will uh, factor in later a magnetic arrowhead, which will factor in later some Stark arrowheads. And there's also a way too dangerous arrowhead that will sort of factor in later And Clint, as they're going through this and and making the trick arrows, 
Clint is offering Kate one last chance to not go through with this and not jump into this hero life. You might argue that it's already too late, but hey, Clint, before they both go to the holiday party together and engage Kate's mother, here's one last chance to back out. And Clint says, you know you don't have to do this. It is part of the job. It's always inconvenient. It's lonely. You will get hurt. Heroes have to make some tough decisions. So if you're going to do this, I just want to know you're ready. And Kate's response is everything. She says, when I was younger, aliens invaded. I was alone and I was terrified. But then I saw you fighting aliens with a stick and a string. I saw you jump from that building, even though you can't fly, even though you don't have superpowers. And I thought if he could do that, then I don't have to be scared. You showed me that being a hero isn't just for people who can fly or shoot lasers out of their hands. It's for anyone who's brave enough to do what's right, no matter the cost. And all Clint can do is just exhale at that. And he lets out a little smile. And then Kate finishes with, I'm ready. And Mm. wow, that is one of my favorite exchanges in the entire MCU. It is a good old fashioned summation and endorsement of heroism but it's also vital for this show and meaningful to these characters at this moment and everything that we've seen them go through and talk about together. Clint, as the mentor, has cautioned Kate regarding her desire to be a superhero. And even though at this point in the episode, he's already called her his partner, it is important that he issue Kate this one final warning about the full scope of the decision that she's making and check to see if she's sure Here's what this still means. Do you still want it? And are you ready for it? And Kate still wants this life and all the bad that will surely come with it because of the good that's going to come with it. She's ready to pay the price, no matter the cost, whatever it takes. And her description of Clint's actions in the Battle of New York meant to her, when she describes that and what it meant to her, that shows that it's not just about thrill-seeking or cool costumes. She's talked about those things as highlights, but they really are just bonuses. It's not why she's doing it. It's really about doing what's right and inspiring others to do the same. So when you rise up and face your fears or the difficult challenges that we all face, others will feel like they have the power to answer those challenges or at least try. And as wonderful it is as an audience member to hear Clint or to hear Kate say all of those things, It's also something that Clint desperately needed to hear, which is why he lets out that sigh and why he smiles, because Clint, while he is far from perfect and he's done terrible things, he has been a hero, too. And even though he says that he's not a role model or shouldn't be a role model, he has been one to Kate and probably others. And now he's inspired someone in Kate Bishop who has a chance to be an even greater hero and role model than he's ever been and inspire even more future heroes, because maybe she'll match the good that he's done without necessarily having the bad detour that he had as Ronan. So there is a path to redemption for Clint Barton and Kate Bishop has a lot to do with it. Or, you know, I'm just, I'm just full of crap and this is all just a theme park ride. (laughs) You know, that that's super well said. I, I couldn't sum it up any better than that. But the one thing I'll add about the montage scene is the, with the music, it felt very home alone to me. 
I'm not sure if I'm the only one who thought that, but it just it almost seemed like it was an, like an homage to Home Alone and, and all that stuff. And even though it's a montage and that's obviously an, an 80s trope, if you will, and, and, and a very easy thing and fun thing to do. Just the way the way it was shot specifically reminded me of Home Alone and, and how it was presented with the music. I'm not sure if I'm alone in that, but. That's the that's the the only thing I kept thinking about as I was watching it, which I loved. I love the trick arrow scene. That was one of my favorite parts of the episode. Yeah, the the trick arrow montage was great. I mean, montages in general, I, I tend to be a fan. So, um, and this one was true. was no different. And now it's uh, holiday party time, and Kazi takes his perch. He's going to be the sniper. He's going after Eleanor Bishop. We see the tracksuit mafia is there. They're going to be covering the exits. Kate and Clint arrive. Clint has Kate evaluate the assets and threats in the room. The LARPers are there as the assets in the room. I like that sort of mentor mentee type of stuff of what are the of her of him trying to help her just evaluate, assess the situation when walking into a room. Um, But I think really the purpose of the scene, it's not so much the spy games tutelage. I I think it has a lot more to do with, hey, the LARPers are here and that's going to be fun. And it is fun. Uh, Jack is also there with a sword because why not? And he is, as he said he would be, already out of jail in time to attend the holiday party. And then Jack gets a sick burn on Armand the Seventh when Armand is talking about inheriting Jack's wine collection or whatever. Jack says, do you remember when you peed your pants in the Hamptons? I do. Everybody does. Great job. Tony Dalton is magical as Jack Duquesne. Then Yelena arrives, as does Eleanor. Kate confronts her mother who then pleads her case or starts to when Jack interrupts. Kazi spots Clint and decides to take a shot, which kicks off the action sequence that takes over most of the rest of the episode, although it does pause for emotional beats along the way, which I really appreciated. Clint runs, Yelena pursues, Kate goes out to help, uh, despite Eleanor saying it's too dangerous, and Kate gets a great clap back on her mom. You're the reason it's dangerous out there, mom. Just stay put and stay out of this. Of course, Eleanor doesn't stay put, and then they have to try and track her down throughout the episode. But this, Paul, was a really big moment for Kate to stand up to her mother in this way, because Eleanor is the one who's been trying to talk Kate out of throughout this series, and you would imagine throughout a lot of Kate's life, trying to talk Kate out of being a hero because it's too dangerous. All the while, Eleanor has been inviting danger into their lives on a regular basis by working for Kingpin. And even though, yes, it started out as paying a debt for her late husband, has she really tried to get out of it after paying that debt? I don't think so, because as Kingpin Mm. pointed out, she's profited quite a lot by continuing to work with Kingpin. So I don't think she's been held to this relationship or this working arrangement against her will this whole time. Eleanor has wanted to do this and continue to do this. So yes, to Kate's point, Eleanor is the reason, or at least amongst the reasons, why it's so dangerous out there. So she's not really in any position to talk to Kate about safety. Yeah, and also, what I thought, too, is it's not just dangerous, but also maybe she knows that if the more Kate as wants to be a hero, she's going to uncover herself, right? And I think that's maybe more of so what she's protecting herself and their relationship more than anything. And, and that's the way I always write it. And, right. and I think into this... You really see Kate's mom be Eleanor really be manipulative way more. So we all kind of got that in the last episode, but to this, and again, kudos to the, you know, to the acting here, I really feel like it's even more heavy of the manipulation going on. And I've talked about in previous episodes of, you know, the naivete, I love that word, by the way, um, of Kate 
and how this series very much is her maturity as a person. Like, I think she's already got the, the obviously the arrow stuff in, in spades. The thing is she has to learn to be a mature, you know, hero in, in some respects in the end of the series. And I think obviously understanding it and, and knowing what, what is, what will seem as, as wrong and right will always kind of maybe reverse themselves. Like she, like at the very beginning of the, of the season, she thought Jack Duquesne was the evil guy. Well, it ends up being her mom. Well, right here, her mom is like, well, actually, you know, trying to convince her. And she realizes like, you know, Hey mom, you're the reason this is evil. And, and Kate's learning the value, you know, the, the hard lesson here of your mom, you know, people you're close to are going to, you know, not just do wrong things, but could be potentially the people you're bringing down. And I think that is a really, you know, important lesson for any hero. And we're seeing the origin story of Kate Bishop's Hawkeye here. Right. And I think it's, it's really cool because this is what she's learning, you know, learning as, as, a, as an adult, as a hero that, you know, this, my loved one, my own mother who raised me after my dad passed away she is the one I have to bring down. And right. that's, that's a really cool, um, you know, interesting uh, scenario, which again, in the comic books, you know, again, I love that Kate Bishop, but this version of Kate Bishop and why I love this series so much. And I think the series might even be better than the actual comic book itself, to be honest. Um, I think the comic book is really great. It's one of Marvel's better comics written in the last 10, 15 years. But this series has been done such a great job of incorporating not just the MCU Hawkeye of Clint Barton, and I think making the character much more much better than what Joss Whedon gave us in Age of Ultron and, and how it improves upon an endgame. Uh, but with Kate Bishop specifically – it's a much more interesting character, and I like this version of her maybe even better than the comic books because I like the idea that she had to really come to a, a real different understanding of where you know where she is in life and what that means to be a hero. And and again, what Clint talked about earlier, right, Sean, about being sa sacrificed and all that. Right. She has to learn that this episode she's sacrificing, which we'll pick up to in a little bit. She's had to sacrifice a lot more than what she even realizes. I think I don't think she really quite understands even at that point when she talks to her mom of what's going on mm -hmm. necessarily, uh, or not. She understands what's going on, what she did, but what that means for at the very end. And I think that to me is what is really fascinating about this part is that she right now she's in the, the heat of it, right? She's in the heat of battle. She's not quite there in understanding of what this means for her and her mom at the end of it. You know, it's just her. She's trying to save and, and get those people out of there because of what's going to happen. So. Really interesting things um, here that I think go on, and I, I, I do love this scene as well. Yeah, I, I thought it was great, and I think that's where this finale really excelled for me, is when it just paired these characters off and allowed them to have the conversations that they just needed to have for themselves as characters individually or as pairs of groups of characters together, and then also just what the story has demanded from these characters. And I count this as, as one of those scenes where they did such a great job. And as I mentioned, Eleanor doesn't stay put after Kate leaves. That means Jack is all alone, but he's ready because he says, okay, Jack, this is it. It's your time. It's not quite. It will be in a moment. So we will get back to the lovely Jack Duquesne. Kate finds Yelena. Kate tries to hide Clint and talk Yelena out of it. And then we get the whole Eleanor, the elevator bit. I loved this so much from Kate trying to be like, well, you don't know what floor he's on. He's on floor 12. Damn it. And then they're back and forth in the elevator. And then the slap that Kate gives to Yelena and Yelena just looking back at her. What was that? I don't know. And then Kate, they wrestle with each other. And Kate hits all the floors. And Yelena just thought, oh, that's not cool or whatever. So annoying. 
And it's not, look, it's not the most sophisticated or mature move by Kate Bishop, but you know what? It worked. It bought Clint Mm -hmm. a little bit of time. And I like that we also start to see, as they cut away from this briefly, the LARPers are actively, they they are serving a purpose now. I mean, they already were in being uh, little mini spies in the holiday party, but now they're also helping to get the crowd out safely, even though the crowd is not uh, not really listening to them very well. But they will have a strategy for addressing that coming up in the episode. And Kate, we see, keeps running interference to try and slow down Yelena. I love how she invites Yelena to, we should get a drink. And Yelena's like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. Right after I kill Clint Barton. And uh, <laughs> that was awesome. Uh, speaking of Barton, we see him smoking out Kazi from Kazi's sniper perch. And then Yelena and Kate take turns praising each other. And Kate has a great line there saying, stop making me like you. And Yelena's is uh, just as great, if not better, saying, I'm sorry, I can't help it. That was really fun. Bye. And then takes off. That line, that response to stop making me like you, I'm sorry, I can't help it, perfectly encapsulates our collective feelings about Yelena and Florence Pugh's portrayal. She's just so good and she just can't help being so much fun, so charismatic that it's impossible for her to not be liked. So we like her or rather we love her. And, you know, of course, all of the hard work for Florence Pugh as an actor and her talent uh, and her her skill and her her dedication to her craft. All of that is very, very important. But clearly there's just something otherworldly about the charisma that she brings to this role. And uh she makes us like her, but we really don't mind because she's very easy to like and she just continues to get better and better in this role. It's ridiculous how charismatic and how much I love Yelena and her, her this version of Black Widow. I I never under I never thought I'd be this head over heels for this character. Uh, when I knew they were introducing this, this this different version of Black Widow that was from the comic books that was had a very very brief run, you know, not even that pre- you know prevalent. And again, we talked to you know previous episodes before about legacy characters. How Marvel never really, really had legacy heroes and characters, Sean. And now with the MCU, that's all they're doing. And it's like, man, it's it's forcing Marvel comic books to really you know reintroduce some of these characters and, and make them different versions and and uh, force that legacy aspect that the DC so known for. Florence Pugh's y- Elena is just such. I can't even, I don't even know what it is, but every time she's on screen, I just, I'm glued to it and I'm just, I'm laughing and I'm just rooting for the character constantly. And I, and one of the things I got from this episode specifically, which I thought, again, I'm not sure if this is intentional, if I'm just projecting or reading too much into it, but you know, with the whole Hawkeye and Black Widow connection from the previous, you know, characters with, uh, you know, Natasha and Clint, there's a history, there's a friendship, there's a closeness and we that was already established. Now, I'm not sure if they're purposely doing this or it's just because Kate, you know, Kate Bishop and Yelena are just so just, they have a great chemistry. It feels like we're they're giving that to us again, Sean, but we're seeing that unfold all that unfold before our very eyes. And it's happening so naturally. I'm like, man, is this going to be like they're just continuing the whole idea of Hawkeye and and Black Widow being like best friends or or whatever. But we're seeing the seeds of this planted in this season because that's what it feels like. It feels like we're they're giving us giving us that or maybe it's coincidence. I don't know, but it doesn't feel like a coincidence to me. 
and it feels very natural. It feels like very much like once Clint is retired, which I'm assuming he will or quote unquote semi-retired from being a superhero, and it's now Yelena and Kate Bishop, you know, working together. It's you know, Kate's gonna rely on Yelena to train her. It's, it feels like that way when they're fighting. They're I almost call it play fighting. That's what it feels like when she's when she slaps her and she's like, "Hey!" I'm like, "Yeah, this is this is great." That's what it feels like to me. I'm not sure if you kind of feel well, that same way. Well, it's two characters that really like each other and don't want to hurt each sure. other. And yeah, there you go. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that's it's not necessarily play because Yelena does want to kill Clint Barton or thinks she does, sure. and Kate Bishop desperately wants to protect Clint Barton, but it's a very interesting dynamic. And even the way that Haley Steinfeld is playing on her side of it with Kate, like Elena's side, we we very much understand of what she's trying to do. And she likes Kate and doesn't want to hurt Kate. And Elena certainly feels like the, not just feels like she is, she's the more experienced of the two. She is the more lethal of the two. If Elena wanted to kill Kate Bishop, Kate Bishop would already be dead. That's just the reality of the situation. But Yelena kind of likes her and also just doesn't never mind whether or not she likes Kate Bishop has no reason to kill Kate Bishop and even though she gave the threat of like don't get in my way again well here is Kate getting in her way like 15 more times just in this elevator sequence and, and going back through it to keep getting in her way to stand between Yelena and Clint Barton but she still knows that Kate doesn't deserve to die for that meanwhile on the other side with Kate Bishop she likes Yelena so much and, and even understands Elena's motive for wanting to kill Clint Barton. Right. She doesn't agree with it. She doesn't think it's the right thing for Elena to do, but she understands it's coming from a place of hurt, from a, uh, a place of pain. And what she would rather do is just try and reach Elena and get Elena to decide not to go through with it, not to go through with killing Clint Barton. But yeah, it's a very interesting dynamic between the two of them. And I hope it continues in future stories because Florence Pugh as Elena amazing Haley Steinfeld as, yeah Haley Steinfeld as Kate Bishop amazing the two of them together amazing squared like it just it's exponential you might as well you go ahead and get the, it yeah it, it's you, yeah that it's pairing crazy. is amazing well and in Florence Pugh in general I mean like I, it feels like she'll she should get whatever team they put her on whether it be Avengers or Thunderbolts or whatever Dark Avengers I I she has to be the leader she has to be or at least like the the field leader, because I feel like it's either going to be if they're going to do some kind of uh, a Thunderbolts or Dark Avengers, it'll be probably Baron Zemo or if it's Thunderbolts. I'm even considering, you know, Jeremy Renner's Clint Barton being that. But it feels like she's going to be the field leader of that team. And I wouldn't be surprised if they made her the, the leader. And, and if that's all that they do, they need to give her either her own Disney Plus show or her own film because right. She is just electric, and I I don't I don't see anyone online. And granted, like I don't go seeking it, but I definitely have a lot of opinionated people I follow who definitely will let me know if they don't like something MCU wise. And it seems like she has has been like, has anyone said anything negative about this? I mean, I I don't think she. It's possible. It's the internet, so I'm sure someone has. Sure, but, but whoever but they even, are but, and, and whatever they said, they were wrong, right. so it doesn't matter. But let's. But the thing is. They, I really feel after watching this, and she needs to have her own movie or, or Disney oh, Plus yes. series. I agree. It has to happen. I agree. Has to. Well, I think it's going to happen because the audience is just going to demand it. And if you're Marvel yeah. Studios, you got to know, you got to be supremely confident in the idea know. that if you make a 
Yelena movie or series, the audience will be there. And and really, the series are, are a little bit more low-risk propositions for Disney yeah. and Marvel Studios because it's all just about the subscribers on, on Disney+. Plus, and certainly, a Yelena series would help in that respect. But we don't get to evaluate the individual performance of those things in a very public way like we can with a movie and where we look at box office. But... I think you would have pretty good box office for a Yelena movie, and you wouldn't necessarily have to spend a ton of money relative to Marvel Studios movies and, and their already very high budgets. I think they could get a lot of return on their investment with a Yelena movie, or if they wanted to, a Yelena series. But yes, she is totally ready to, and, and has been from the jump with what she did in Black Widow, to lead her own project. I, I don't really think there's much doubt there. It's just a matter of, Marvel finding the right story and getting it all to get and getting it all put together and and being able to put it out there for all of us to see. Uh, but then we see uh, Yelena. She goes out the window. She runs down the building. She shoots her shots at Clint Barton. She misses, and Kate goes out the window much less gracefully. And there's a moment there right before Kate makes the jump, where she's talking to herself and giving herself permission to be afraid in this moment. She's saying it's supposed to be scary. It's supposed to be scary. And it's silly and it's fun, but it's also very sincere and meaningful that she says that because this is Kate being brave. She talked about heroes being brave and, and all of that stuff in her conversation with Clint earlier, but you should be a little scared. And or you should be just plain terrified if you're about to go out of a window from that high up in a building and it really doesn't take much courage or bravery to do things that you're not afraid of. Where courage and bravery come into it is when you are afraid, but you push through it to do the right thing. And that's what Kate does in that moment. It's played in a more comedic tone, but it's still very real in the choice that she's making. This is Kate being a hero who can't fly, just like when she saw Clint during the Battle of New York fighting aliens. Uh, meanwhile... As Kate gets down to the ground, uh, Thomas and the tracksuit mafia are attacking Kate, but it's not all bad because Thomas is thanking her because uh, it's probably not the best moment right now, as he says, but I want to thank you, you know, for your advice. What you said, how I should speak to my girlfriend. Kate asks if it worked, and he says, it worked, bro. We went to Maroon 5 instead. So Kate asks rightfully, great, so what's with the gun? And then he says, I'm sorry, before Kate takes him out, and then he still says he, that he wanted to thank her hilarious moment. I love that so much. Going back to that wonderful moment in episode three where they slammed Imagine Dragons. Now they're talking about Maroon 5. No opinion is actually offered on Maroon 5 by Kate Bishop, so we don't know how she feels about them. I could take a guess. Um, but anyway, uh, I love that Kate is getting thanked for her advice, but just because we're on friendly terms with relationship advice, it doesn't mean they're not going to try and kill you, bro. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That was just so good. And then another tracksuit has a uh, looks like he has the drop on Kate, has her at gunpoint, and Jack makes the yeah. save. And the swordsman starts using his sword. And I love it after he takes the guy out. Hello, sweetie. Just the the sweet, endearing Jack Duquesne. And this really is, you can tell, Jack's first time where he gets to use a sword for real. He finally gets to use his sword skills for real. He hasn't been doing this bef uh, before. That's my takeaway from the scene. There's no hint in this yeah, episode agree. that Jack Duquesne was ever anything else, as I was starting to suspect last week. He's just a spoiled rich kid who was able to ha spend a lot of time and had the money and the time to take a lot of fencing lessons 
and maybe had some talent in that arena, and now he's able to use that for good. But I think this is a great choice for Jack Duquesne. If somebody is a diehard Swordsman fan and they didn't get what they wanted as far as a backstory with the character, that's fair. I, I can't really argue with that. I myself am not a diehard Swordsman fan and was not emotionally depending on having a faithful depiction of him in the MCU, more of a peripheral character who you can put in in this instance and you can take some liberties with or a lot of liberties with as they did in this case. And I'm totally fine with it because I, I love it. As I was saying last week, I liked the idea of finding out in the era of the mystery box, especially this year with some of the Marvel Studios stuff. And I don't say it as a criticism because it was very fun and very satisfying in a series like WandaVision to have something like this with a character like Jack Duquesne, where from the very beginning, you're wondering what's up with this guy? What's up with this guy? To find out at the end, nothing's up with this guy. He is exactly as he has presented himself. Everything he's done and said has been sincere. This is just who he is. So he's not. he wasn't trying to get under anyone's skin, uh, especially not Kate's when he was talking to her about how he read a stepdad book. He read it because he genuinely wanted to be a good stepdad. And in this moment, even though he hasn't married her mother yet and probably won't, for his sake, I hope he doesn't, um, he still gets to be in that stepdad role and, and make this, sa this one save of Kate, uh, which is also returning the favor because she saved him all the way back in episode one, even though he didn't know that that's who she was at the time. So that symmetry I love, but also just Jack Duquesne. So charming, such a wonderful Ugh. character. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'll, I'd be lying if I, if I'd say, if I, if I say it right now that I, I, I wouldn't be disappointed or wasn't disappointed. The fact that he was just, he is what he was, but at the same time, I still like what we got a lot because it's so different. I gotta say, I think that they're gonna be. I think they're gonna be a family still, bro. Like I really do think so. Because here's why: because with her mom gone, he doesn't have. She does. She loses that the one piece of her family. Right. And Jack ended up being like 100% sincere. Like yeah. He saved her life. He he read the the stepdad book. So I feel like he's gonna be this quasi mentor slash father figure. That's not really a father. You know what I mean? Like it's not gonna be a true father figure but it's going to be the closest thing she has to a family and he, because he's rich and he's gonna have he's, he's probably going to be like i feel so connected to you kate i have to you have to be you know he's right. going to feel like obligated to take care of her so i feel like he's gonna if she, you know whatever we see her whether it be hopefully in her own series again in a season two of hawkeye i think he shows up and he's there and they hang out and they're like a family and I would not be shocked if he shows up in a costume in some ridiculous swordsman costume trying to help her either. So well, he's definitely going to have a costume because now he's ready to join the the LARPers Guild, as we'll talk about when we get to the end of the episode. Yes. So, yeah, Jack Duquesne is going to get a costume. And I agree with you. I do expect that he will continue to have a relationship with Kate Bishop, regardless of whether or not he ends up marrying her mom. Jack Duquesne yep. is such a sweet and naive guy, as spoiled as he may be. I could actually see him marrying Eleanor while she's still in prison. I would not put that past uh, Jack Duquesne. Yeah. It could totally happen. I just hope for his uh, yeah. sake he he doesn't Honey, move forward with that plan. I understand. You, <laughs> yeah. you married to the kingpin. Yeah. He's, <laughs> yeah. Like, look, he's very, Jack Duquesne is very, very understanding. So he, I love Jack Duquesne. Yeah. I he, love him. He's as good with empathy as he is with a sword. He just knows. He just knows. And uh, I, I really love Jack Duquesne. And, and I'm, I think it's very refreshing that there wasn't much more to this guy than what he presented himself I, I, as, and, and I, I liked it. And even going back to him downplaying his sword skills, that that was him 
trying to win favor. Yeah, that was him just trying to be nice and be polite and and not wanting to embarrass Kate or anything like that. It wasn't about him trying to hide that he's this guy who's this secret agent or murderer or whatever it is, that it was just Jack's own attempt at at being nice. So then uh, we're, we're back in the building. Kazi is in the building now, having left his sniper's perch where Clint had smoked him out earlier. And Kazi is ready to take on Clint Barton, saying he's going to enjoy this, but it's going to be very difficult for Kazi to enjoy because he's not very good in hand-to-hand combat, at least nowhere near on the level of Clint Barton. I mean, he does his best to hold his own before uh, Barton knocks him out with a German suplex. And then Clint goes all diehard out the window and into the Christmas tree in Rockefeller Center. There's an owl there, too. Be, uh, be mindful of the owl. But I, I really like how they're the jump out of the tower and everything and going into the Christmas tree, as I said, it, it felt very diehard to me. You know, having the having the finale, the the big action set piece of the finale, so much of it taking place in a very tall building and a lot of that. I mean, they didn't go too crazy with the diehard references or anything like that, but that that still felt like a little bit of an undercurrent of, of an homage that was sort of put into this finale, which is great because Die Hard is a Christmas movie. That's MCU canon because Kate Bishop had it in her box of in her in the huge grouping of Christmas movies that she brought over for her and Clint to watch. And so that reference uh, was appreciated there, at least a little bit of that visual style. And then Clint is stuck up in that tree for a bit while Kate deals with things on the ground. The LARPers decide that it's time to suit up so that the panicked people might actually listen to them. We cut to Maya in her apartment. She's ready to go on the run, but we see that she's going to head back to avenge her father after she looked at a couple of family photos. And then Kate finds some high ground, and we see the LARP Avengers assemble, and they start battling the tracksuits. And Orville gets in a good belly bump to take a guy out, uh, so that was a lot of fun. Meanwhile, Clint, not impressed by the LARP Avengers, just looking at them and saying, we're all going to die. But it's funny, and it's a huge part of the joy and entertainment value of this series and of this finale. But it's also exactly what Kate was talking about, that it's heroes inspiring more heroes and people helping however they can. It also helps, though, to, uh, of course, not to take anything away from these folks who are are part of this LARPers Guild, because remember that most of them are already first responders. So they already were heroes ahead of this, but seeing them step up in this moment and just helping in the best way that they could, not necessarily the most dramatic superhero performance by any of them, but you still need people to usher others to safety as well in these moments. So them taking on that role and getting a a few shots in at the tracksuits I thought was perfect. LARPers were not my favorite aspect of of the episode at this part. But that's it wasn't like I hated it. It just was I was like, eh, whatever. I it was played for laughs. It, it worked. It was fine. I, I did like the owl. Well, the owl was very cute, even though it was CGI. That's fine. Oh, yeah. I thought it was very, very appropriate. It kind of added the, the it honestly kind of adds to the fact that like Hawkeye's whole uh, this whole season has just been so ridiculous. And and the kind of it almost was like the culmination of that right? as he's like sitting in the tree. Mm-hmm. You know, and he sees an owl just staring at him and he's just like, and he sees the LARPers and it's, it's just, it's just kind of, I don't know. I love, I love the visual rep, rep, uh, representation, excuse me, uh, that, that it, I thought it represented. Um, I, I will say the, the Kazi stuff is interesting because I keep, I know there's, they, they said he's playing the clown. I'm not sure if that's still accurate or not, or if that's still like 
what because I, I don't remember the clown very much from the comic books. I don't know if they actually had a name. His name was Kazi. I don't remember that or not, to be honest. But it is interesting that they keep emphasizing the fact that he just keeps failing. Right. You know, he, 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 he keeps getting his butt kicked, essentially. What does that mean? And he hasn't it feels like it's it's you're you're developing a character besides right. this. It's what it feels like to me. So I'm like, I don't know if it's if he is playing the clown, but I have to redo my research on that again. I, I I meant to do that before, but it is interesting that it feels like they're building this character up, like the fact that Clint keeps beating the crap out of him and embarrassing him, even though he he he's also good, like you said, he can hold his own. But he's not quite to that level. Yeah. What is, well, what he can hold his own for? only for a little bit, though, and then sure, Clint kind right, of starts right, right. to dominate. And really, if you go back through the entirety of the series, including a fight that will happen later that we'll talk about, but do we ever really see Kazi best anybody in anything? Yeah. No, we exactly. don't. So he's kind of got, well, he's a bad guy, but he's a sort of nice, well-meaning bad guy, so he's semi-lovable loser status right now is right. Kazi, and we'll see what that means for him and whether or not he's going to have a future. I think he will, despite what happens later on in the episode, but I'll, I'll wait until we get to that to address sure. that specific point. But then Kate decides she's going to get Clint out of the tree by, you know, throwing an acid arrow at the tree or firing an acid arrow at the tree and taking most of the tree down. Important to note that no owls were harmed in that sequence, not just because it was CG, but you can actually see it flying away, and then it will, of course, come back later. So now we get to the moment where it's Kate and Clint together versus the tracksuit mafia, and Clint wore his costume. And then when uh, Clint is uh, able to share some trick arrows with Kate, she says, no way, is it time? He says, it's time, Kate, let's give him hell, and with a little bit of a smile. And... This is great because they already had the very deep and meaningful, this is what it is to be a hero, and here's the choice that you're making, and it's a very, very serious thing. This is my serious face. It's all super serious. But also, even though being a hero involves a whole lot of sacrifice, you can still have some fun in the process, and Clint knows that. Kate obviously knows that, and to see Clint lean into that and even give Kate a little bit of permission there. Like, yeah, this is kind of fun and it's okay that we're going to have fun doing this right now. Cause if you can't have a little bit of fun being a superhero, then it's just all the sacrifice and all the bad stuff. So Kate gets to lean into that, uh, into a little bit of that fun side and, and Clint does as well. And then they give the tracksuits hell and it's awesome with trick arrows galore that culminates with the trusted bro truck, uh, zooming in and Kate fires a, a pim arrow at it, and it shrinks down before the owl scoops it up. And that allows us to get another Ant-Man reference where Kate's asking, what happens to them now? And Clint says, I don't know. I'll have to ask Scott about that one. But then the owl gets him. He's like, but, well, then there's that. So uh, all of that sequence, I, I don't have a, a ton to say about it other than it's all action and it's all cool. I thought it looked great. It, it lived up to, and I knew because it was a big part of the trailers, we were going to get this scene this all-out action sequence of Hawkeye and Hawkeye together uh, versus the tracksuit mafia, and it, it lived up to my expectations and even surpassed them with uh, some of the visuals we got here. Yeah, this was a great, I, I thought, kind of uh, end third act, if you will. And, and that's the one thing I would say about the finales of, of the series. The third acts haven't lived up to the film third acts, I would say. I mean, and, and that's to be expected, in, obviously, because 
the, the films have, you know, less time, but they have to have more of a budget to kind of devote to that third act. I keep thinking of like Shang-Chi and, um, you know, Black Widow and, and right. those are super crazy. And they're, and these are all, again, this and like Loki and even Falcon Winter Soldier and, and WandaVision. WandaVision feels like it was like the most probably probably the biggest of all of them, but I would, or yeah, I would say biggest of all of them. I think it but definitely this, is. It has a full blown yeah. magic fight and a full blown like vision versus vision, vision versus fight. Vision. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, you know, Loki, as we noted, that finale is mostly talking. You'd have to go to sec the second to last episode in the void. Um, that's the one that you would have to go to as the bigger action set piece. And even a lot of that episode is characters running around and then walking and talking like there's not, there's only the Eliath kind of big action piece at the end, which isn't even that big of action because most of it is your actor standing still against a giant monster that you're going to put in there later. And right. so I, I think in terms of action, ones that have, well, the biggest in terms of CG, you probably look at WandaVision. There's a lot of action in, of course, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier finale. Um, but Hawkeye had the best looking action of any finale. And I think maybe some of that has to do with you're talking about things that are more grounded because you're not dealing with characters with superpowers, but their arrows are super powered and all of that stuff, which of course is all CG. I thought all that stuff looked great. I, I didn't, right. I didn't find myself watching any of that sequence thinking this would look better if they had a movie budget. I thought it looked just like it was supposed yeah. to. Yeah, exactly. And I, that's the one thing I really liked about this end scene was that it felt you see the visual culmination. I, and I say that a lot in this and obviously because season finale or whatever series season, whatever it is. The one thing I will say is when you have the two characters teaming up together and they're both firing arrows, it is that almost that passing of the torch or the passing of the arrow, if you will. Yeah. Of them, you know, of, of Kate really becoming Hawkeye at that point. They're both together doing the exact same things, working together. They're, they're in sync together. It really is that passing of the torch of the characters of that, of that legacy name. We're, it's we're the passing that. of the uh, it's the passing of the too dangerous arrow, which you do see when Kate puts oh, it in you her go. quiver. Yeah. You can see it to establish that she has it so she can use it later. Yeah. So I, I this was I, I thought visually awesome. I thought it was, looked great. And I, I, it was a lot of fun to see on screen. And again, it was, it was a good visual, visual representation, I think of, of what, you know, the, the moving, uh, TV movie, uh, medium, if you will, to kind of give you an idea. And again, I love, I thought they did all, all throughout the whole series, but I thought the, the arrows, anytime like Clint or Kate were throwing arrows, they always looked great. I wanted mm -hmm. more of it. And I thought Kate, I'm not sure if Haley just, Seinfeld is just really good at like looking good at throwing arrows, but she looks great when she does it. There's something very fluid when she does it. And I, I whatever training she had, I thought it's been perfect because I think she looks badass every time she throws an arrow. She's there's, there's something to it, which she does even more so than I think Jeremy Renner. And again, I was saying Jeremy Renner looks bad, but for whatever, whatever reason, the way she does it, it just looks really cool to me. And I'm always like, man, I want to see more of that. So I got a lot of that in this episode. I thought she looked great. I thought, I thought, you know, Kate Bishop in this, in this episode particularly comes out the best, just overall developing the character and how she looks and develops. And it's obvious why it's about her, but she really does. They did a great job of developing and making us care about Kate Bishop. And I just, I just think that action scenes are so important because 
the the emotional stuff is you know obviously I think the most important. But I think if you, if you don't if you don't look good like throwing action, it's it's you know it's hard to get. I think want to see more of her in some ways. And I think she's so great in this and looked fantastically fighting that. I'm like, man, like Kate Bishop's going to be a phenomenal character in the MCU going forward. And I think this just shows you the range of the character and, and Haley's uh, performance as a character. So seeing her kick ass was awesome. Yeah, it's been a great year in terms of Marvel's ability to launch a lot of new characters. I mean, if we yeah. go through the mm-hmm. list this year from Monica Rambeau to Yelena to Shang-Chi, Shiling and Katie in, in Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings... The Eternals, maybe not quite to the same extent, at least in terms of popularity and reception. But uh, then Kate Bishop here in the Hawkeye series, Sylvie over in Loki. I mean, there's a lot of new characters that joined the MCU this year. And and certainly you put Kate right up there as uh, one of the best rookies in the MCU this year because it's been such a great showing by Haley Steinfeld throughout this series and especially in this finale And then there are a few sequences that are all intercut, and we'll talk about, we won't go through the cutting back and forth. We're going to break them down and talk about them one at a time in order that they, in the order that they end, not necessarily the order that they start, but it's Kate confronting her mom slash Kingpin. It's Clint dealing with or being confronted by Yelena and a confrontation between Maya and Kazi. And before the Maya and Kazi confrontation, it actually starts out briefly as a confrontation between Clint and Kazi. And going back to that idea of nobody taking Kazi seriously, Clint fires that arrow that becomes a triple arrow and it takes out the two guys on each side of Kazi, but he catches the one right down the middle intended for him. And he says, nice shot. And I just, I love Barton's response to this. They're just, yeah, no shit. I love that response to it. I don't know why. I think it's because of how dismissive it is of literally anything about Kazi that Clint cares nothing yep. about this guy, doesn't give him an ounce of credit whatsoever. Even when he catches the arrow. Yeah. I mean, catching the arrow is impressive. Like, that's a legit exactly. cool thing, but it's a total no sell from Clint Barton. Does not care about Kazi. Yeah. Just doesn't. Um, and yeah. No, uh, go ahead. I, 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 by the way, Kazi, I, I remember we talked about it before, and I thought he was a clown. He is a clown. Yeah. So, you're, so again, you're setting up the fact and, and the whole idea of him catching the arrow, Sean, you're building the fact that, okay, this guy's got some skill, mm-hmm. okay? Like, he can, again, he can somewhat hold his own, but he gets no respect. So you're, you're continuing to just kick the character down, right. which we'll get to in a second, which will, I think, eventually turn into that antagonist, the clown, or whatever. It is interesting that it, that's what they're doing here. It, it, but the actor sells it. Cause, yeah, Rafi is very good. Yeah. And he believe everything he says, like this guy is like, every time he thinks he might be on the same level, even remotely, he gets shot right in the face, you know, at some point. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, we'll talk about the confrontation first of these three big confrontations that are intercut with one another. We'll start with Maya and Kazi because Kazi is telling Maya that she should have left and never come back saying, you know what I have to do, meaning, you know, now I have to kill you because you're here. And Maya looks heartbroken that Kazi is taking this stance against her, but is ready as ever to defend herself. And she says, though, that she doesn't want to kill Kazi, and she offers him a chance to leave with her. He declines, though, saying, this is my life, Maya. It was never supposed to be yours. And Kazi just thinks it's too late to change, that Kingpin won't let it happen. And Kazi can't walk in both worlds, he says, 
which is something that Maya can do, as her dad always told her that she would be able mm. to do. So uh, it's uh, it, it is Kazi in him saying he can't do it. He's also saying that she can. And so it is this him endorsing her, showing that he still believes in her. And this is how warped and messed up this whole situation is, is that they love each other. And yet Kazi feels like he has to kill her, even though she's desperately trying to save him. So they fight. And in the struggle, Kazi is stabbed and he tells Maya to leave that the kingpin is coming for her. And it's a great performance by both actors, Frothy and Alakwa Cox. The sadness that Maya is feeling in that moment combined with the compassion that she still clearly has for Kazi. And that points to an inherent decency that Maya has had this whole time, that she's still willing to forgive Kazi. Remember, Kazi was part of the setup for her dad being killed, but she's still willing to forgive him and feeling that she's no better than Kazi, that they were at that time both under the orders of the influence of the kingpin so she can't blame Kazi anymore for what happened to her dad than she can blame herself. I don't know that I would fully agree with that, but that seems to be the stance that Maya is taking, or even if she doesn't believe they're equal in that respect, that there's enough of an explanation for why Kazi did what he did, and she knows there's a lot of hurt and a lot of regret there, that she's willing to forgive that, knowing that their true enemy is Kingpin, and here she is trying to be brave enough to get out and... You could say, well, running away isn't necessarily brave. It is if you're getting away from the kingpin, because that is a very brave choice to make, because you know a lot of that time is going to be spent dealing with a lot of terrible things just to try and survive. But as far as the end of this battle, because we talked about this last week, how we expected a confrontation between Kazi and Maya, and how that would lead to further confrontations in the Echo Disney Plus series, I still think that's going to happen. I know Kazi got stabbed here, but they didn't show him lying still. When it cuts away from him, he's still speaking. And the last shot from that scene is actually a shot of Maya. Kazi isn't even in the shot, but he is still speaking. So if because they didn't actually show him dying, they didn't show him taking his last breath or anything like that. And when you get stabbed in the stomach, that could go either way in terms of the visual language of live action movies and series Maybe you die, maybe you don't. So if it's a maybe in terms of the potential cause of injury and you leave it uncertain, then my understanding is it's because you are going to leave that character alive and Kazi will be back. That's my takeaway from the scene, besides just how great it was. I was kind of taken aback. I wasn't expecting them to have like a more emotional connection to be honest. But the fact that like they were even that close to begin with, I was, I was like, what, what? I mean, that doesn't make sense to me. Like why? Like it's obvious. Kazi's like, not like they are like almost at odds at all times. It feels like to me. So, I mean, there's definitely a, a, there is a closest to an extent to where like they communicate on a regular basis and he knows sign language, but like, that's all I really kind of got by. This was kind of caught off guard for me. So at least for, at least for me, I was like, that's weird. Why would he go with her? So I don't know that, I didn't really get into that, but it also goes back into the idea that what's going to happen for Kazi later on, I'm assuming what it could turn into as far as his transformation into like an ultimate supervillain. Again, this is the villain origin story here. Uh, where And where will he show up now? Will he show up in, in the Echo series? Will he show up in the Kate Bishop series? Will he show up in both? Right. Very interesting. That's But for me, it never really 
it never really rang true, like the, the, their closeness regardless. So I, I just thought it was kind of odd for me that they were like, come with me. I can't walk in both worlds. Like what? What? I, don't, I, don't <laughs> I, I, I wasn't into it as much, but, but I like the characters in, independently of each other. Yeah. And I, I think that there is an interesting dynamic between the two of them that will probably continue now in, in the echo series. Cause as I said, they didn't carry it all the way through to show Kazi dying. So until we hear otherwise, I expect his return. So the other confrontation that's going on as this is happening is Kate confronting her mom. And then that has to turn into a battle with Kingpin. Eleanor, is, she goes to her car. The driver is dead. Kingpin is attacking her. And Kate is able to defend her mom. She fires an arrow into the chest of Kingpin. But he's got his body armor that was lined into his suit slash shirt which is kind of a callback to the Daredevil Netflix series because he had that there too, whether or not it's official canon. Um, it is a, a visual reference that does call back to it, but um, it doesn't protect him, that armor, from being struck by a car as Eleanor drives a car right into him and sends him into a toy store. So we are going to, so we do get this battle between Kate and Kingpin in the toy store and Kate, it, it's, it culminates with Kate using that coin flicking trick that Clint taught her, uses that with one of Kingpin's cufflinks to set off the too dangerous arrow, which explodes at point-blank range of Kingpin, but he not only survives, he walks away from that later on in the episode. So I guess it wasn't really too dangerous of an arrow after all. I thought this was a little bit ridiculous, or maybe even more than a little bit, but it is somewhat consistent with how Kingpin is usually portrayed. He is very, very strong. He is extremely durable. He does have some body armor to help absorb the energy, the concussion of that uh, of that explosion. And so in a lot of ways, this did play like a classic Kingpin fight of the brute strength versus the speed and the agility. I, I think they might have gone a, a little too far in, in, in some of what Kingpin can handle and, and what he can actually absorb here, but it, it's not too bad. And really, I, I just enjoyed the battle between uh, Kate and Kingpin, and, and the way that she beat him was kind of the way that, that if you're Kate Bishop, that's how you would have to beat Kingpin, because he is kind of the immovable object at times. I loved this fight scene, mainly because, and I love, again, preface, let me, let me preface this. I love Daredevil seasons one, two, and three. And I love Vincent and the way he fought Daredevil in those films or those TV series. The The one thing I will say, though, is it never really felt like the comic books where he's this imposing force. And, and again, part of that was because I think Daredevil Netflix series was trying to ground things a little bit more than, again, they, again, they love hoodies, right? They want to try to ground everything as much as possible. The one thing I will really give um, this version or this iteration of Kingpin or whatever you want to call it is the fact that it felt so much more like the comic books because he felt more in enforcing and just more like the immovable object that he is in the comic books. Um, you know, they always call him the fat man, but like he's like pure muscle. I mean, he's almost superhuman to an extent. And I forgot we, we were talking about uh, this before the show, Sean. I forgot he had the armor. Right. And so even with the arrows, I thought he could take the arrows. I'm like, yeah, it sounds like Kingpin, you know? So in the way he was tossing Kate around, and, you know, granted Kate's a, you know, a very, you know, petite, you know, person compared to Vincent D'Onofrio's imposing, you know, thing, you know, potty or whatever. 
it's still the way they filmed it, the way he he threw Kate around. It felt so much like traditional Kingpin to me that like like from the comic books that I really thought that was missing from the Netflix series. We got that here. We got a real, I, I think, definitive the way he moved. Even he felt like he moved a little differently than in, in the Netflix show. It felt very like he was a lot more powerful. And I've seen other people kind of talk about that too. And that's what it came off to me anyway. It felt like he was moving and just the way he was addressing the the fight felt very much more like the comic books and more like the Kingpin that I knew. And it got me kind of excited to be honest, because I, I did like the way that Kate took him out and had some help. Um, but at the same time, it made me think when we do eventually get more Kingpin versus other characters, like, like, like an echo or even terrible, uh, we're going to get a more, I think, comic yeah. accurate character where his, I think his muscle and the way the way he's got a lot of power behind him I mean he's always got power he's a kingpin but I mean like he just felt like almost borderline superhuman that's that's right. where I felt was missing and I, we got that here and I really like to see that on screen it felt like the most comic accurate we've gotten as far as his fighting goes I liked it I'm just worried that they're teetering on going too far with it where he's not so much a grounded mob boss type villain anymore where he's basically super powered but we'll talk more about that with another moment with kingpin but after kate is able to render kingpin briefly unconscious she goes out she hugs her mom who apologizes and eleanor says it's all going to go back to normal to which kate responds that it's never been normal and a part of her has always known that which harkens back to the conversations that we had in the earlier episodes where you could just tell that this relationship between Kate and her mom, something has always been off between the two of them. And this is maybe not all of it, but this has been a huge part of it. Her mom having this secret criminal life that Kate knows nothing about. And so Eleanor sums it all up by calling it an unfortunate arrangement on which Kate rightfully calls BS and said, and Eleanor tries to spin even more BS about this being how the world is. And she's just needed to protect Kate from it. And then the cops show up and Eleanor left with nothing else resorts to, is this what heroes do arrest their mothers on Christmas? And Kate just comes back with, I'm sorry. I love you, mom. Good for Kate in this moment. Never mind all of the gaslighting that Eleanor is throwing her way. Her mom's been up to some very bad stuff for a very long time and up to some very, very, very bad stuff just recently, murder and attempted murder, hiring a contract killer to take out Clint Barton. And yes, family means love, but it doesn't have to mean the absence of accountability. Kate can love her mom while also requiring her mom to take responsibility for her actions. And that's Kate Bishop living up to, in, in this way, in this moment, living up to what she told Clint when she was summarizing what his, what his heroism in the Battle of New York meant to her and what it inspired within her is that idea of to do what's right, no matter the cost. And we can think about that in terms of self-sacrifice, in terms of loss, but it's also in a moment like this where Kate has to go along with this idea that her mother is a criminal and has to accept responsibility for that. And that means legal responsibility for that and being arrested. And Kate is a part of that. Kate's the one who I'm sure called the cops and turned her mom in. Like this is this is all part of it to do the right thing, which is Eleanor having to take responsibility, be held accountable for her actions, no matter the cost, even what that means for the relationship between Kate and her mom. She still loves her mom, 
but she's going to hold her mom accountable. This is one of my favorite like scenes because to me, this is the ultimate, what I said before, this episode is basically her origin story and her learning and, and, and understanding things and, and of what it is to be a hero and having to do things you maybe not want to do, like have your mom go to jail. But that's essentially what's going on, even though she's trying to th- guilt trip you still, which is really crazy to me. And again, it's it's written fairly well. And I thought portrayed very well that, again, Kate ha- has having to say goodbye to her mom and be like, you know, what? you did this yourself. And I like the fact that she's, you know, she realizes that what this means. I mean, she's losing a mom in in some ways. And also the fact that her life is never going to be the same after this because she's chosen to be a hero now. And she's like, about her mom, like, what does that mean for her? There's so much going on in the scene. And you also have it all is capped off with the fact that her mom's trying to guilt her Mm -hmm. at the very end for doing the right thing. And the fact that Kate still goes through with it and just tells her like, sorry, you know, you did, you made your bed basically is what, you know, I'm paraphrasing obviously, but I, I like that. I like the fact that we're getting this whole, that, that, that naive Kate that I've talked about is finally grown up right here. This is, this is the end. This is her finally realizing and coming to terms with what has to go on or what, to go on and what, what that means to be a hero is we got that in no way home a lot. Right. I mean, right. In some ways, the whole idea of sacrifice and what that means. And when you're a hero, what that, what that can mean and does for you isn't always what you want it to be. And you have to do things you don't like to do, like put your mom in jail. Exactly. So, I mean, yeah. Like this is, <laughs> this is a very different hero sacrifice than I think I've yeah. ever seen in anything. We're certainly used to, Heroes, they lay down their lives to save the day and, and everything. Not to say that that's not impactful in storytelling. It's great. But we see those instances. We see other sacrifices that are made. And, and even a, a different type of sacrifice that we got at Spider-Man in Spider-Man No Way Home. I don't want to say exactly what this is in case somebody's listening to this and they haven't seen No Way Home just yet. But um, I think this this is also a very, very new one where doing what's right no matter the cost means turning in your mom uh, is something that is very different. But look, her mom, we're not just talking about her mom has unpaid parking tickets. We're talking about her mom being a murderer and uh, continuing to, trying to continue being a murderer and murder other people like Clint Barton. So yes, Eleanor Bishop is a, a very, very bad criminal who's done some very, very bad things that yeah, she will have to account for. But lucky for her, she gets to do it in the heightened reality of the MCU, where there will probably be some loophole where she eventually gets out of prison or something like that and is back in Kate's life and back being a problem for Kate. I have uh, every expectation that that will happen whenever we get a Hawkeye season two. And even though they didn't officially announce one in the credits like they did with Loki, I do believe that we will get a Hawkeye season two. And, And if not that, somewhere else where Kate Bishop's story will uh, will likely continue. But then the other confrontation that we get here is Clint and Yelena. Yelena needs to know what happened, and Clint says she wouldn't believe him even if he told her, which is right because Yelena doesn't believe him when he's telling her that Natasha sacrificed herself and saved the world. And Clint is saying that nobody killed her. She made a choice. Yelena's saying stop lying, and Clint explains that Natasha sacrificed herself He couldn't stop her. Elena still won't accept that. He says, uh, she asks, why would she sacrifice herself for you? Why do you deserve it? Clint says, I don't. And then 
Yelena draws the conclusion that that Natasha died because Clint let her. Clint says, I fought her for it, but she was better than me. To which Yelena responds, you should have fought harder. And Yelena goes in for the kill. And then Clint does that secret whistle that was established between Natasha and Yelena just in Black Widow uh, a handful of months ago. But it comes in handy right now, right here and now in this Hawkeye finale. And then Yelena is wondering how he knows that Clint runs through the plot of Black Widow for those who didn't see it or need a refresher from the movie this past summer. And Clint says she loved you and always wanted you safe. Natasha loved Yelena, always wanted her safe. And Yelena talks about how she feels guilty about not being there and how she could have stopped it. But Clint sums it all up perfectly when he says nothing was going to stop her, Yelena. You know, Natasha, she made her choice. We're going to have to find a way to live with that. And Yelena says, I loved her so much. Clint, with tears in his eyes, says, me too. And Yelena offers offers her hand, pulls Clint back up. Clint says he's sorry. Yelena walks away. And all of that back and forth between those two characters. I love the writing. The performances by Jeremy Renner and Florence Pugh were right on point. It was all just way, it was all just a way too dangerous arrow right to the heart for me. And yeah. Yelena was the way they played this and they allowed Yelena to go through pretty much every example and every potential argument that she could have against Clint's account of what happened to try and find some way to justify blaming him. And that was important because I think for Yelena, she's obviously smart enough and capable of understanding what happened. And she's been capable of understanding that this entire time. But understanding something and accepting it are different things. So when you lose someone so suddenly, and this was very sudden for Yelena, she snapped out of existence, came back five years later, and then found out that her sister had died. When you lose someone so suddenly, anger is a part of it. You want something or someone to blame. It's part of how... We as human beings try to make sense of things and even try to reestablish some sense of control over a situation is when we can assign a cause or a person to blame and start and transfer the anger we feel and the grief we feel over the loss, try and push that onto this other thing or this other person that we're blaming. And sometimes there really is someone or something to blame. And in this case, there is, except it's not Clint Barton. It's Thanos. But Thanos is gone. Yelena can't take any revenge on Thanos. All of that is over and done with. Thanos has literally been snapped out of existence just like she was, except he is not coming back, as far as she knows at this point in the story and as far as we know right now. There was no one else to try and hold accountable except the person who was with Natasha when she died, and that was Clint Barton. But Yelena finally sees that Clint wasn't to blame, and when he explains it, it's it is the truth and she knows that it's right. It's just something that she wouldn't let herself see. Natasha was the person and Elena really can't deny that once Clint sums it all up. Natasha was the person who would sacrifice herself to save the universe, especially when Elena was one of the people in it. And Natasha was better than Clint. That's why she beat him and won, air quotes, the opportunity to make that sacrifice. And this even further informs our perspective now of the Vormir scene. This makes it even better, like knowing what we know about Yelena now and the fact that she was snapped and having seen the bond between Natasha and Yelena in Black Widow, 
in this year in 2021, that scene on Vormir from Avengers Endgame in our year 2019 took place 2014 in story time. That scene on Vormir gets even better because now we know with the benefit of complete context that the family Natasha wanted to save went beyond the Avengers. It was also the family that we met in Black Widow and especially her sister, Yelena. And uh, my last piece from this, yes, I want to see another team up between Kate Bishop and Yelena, but now that they are on much, much more, uh, now they are on somewhat friendly terms, I wouldn't mind seeing a team up between Clint and Yelena. Yeah, I, I'm i with you on that one too. I think you sum up pretty well. I, I really don't have much to add uh, add other than I love seeing Florence Pugh work, and I did like to see the kind of have some closure on uh Natasha, you know, a little bit that to me, this to me was the last, you know, hanging thread of that version of the care, you know, of Natasha's black widow. So getting that kind of culmination again, it keeps saying culmination because that's what it feels like this, this, this season series finale has. It's really kind of, it's, it's like all coming to a head comes to a close. And now things are moving forward in different directions that, you know, that we maybe not were, we didn't know what they were going to happen afterwards, but now we're getting a better idea of like, okay, with Clint, we'll get to that in a second. But with Yelena, now she has closure. Now she accepts. What does she do with that? Because we know that after the end credit scene of Black Widow, that's what her motivation is. So now that it's gone, what does that mean? And we we kind of know that she's kind of a, a a gun for hire. And what again? What is you know? Don't call her Val. What does that mean for her? What is that going on? And and it's really interesting where she's at right now because now revenge is out of the way. Where does she go from here? Right. It's very intriguing to me. So yeah, that's where I would kind of end with that. It's also in terms of her relationship with Don't Call Her Val, this is an incomplete assignment. Mm. Right? She was hired right. by Eleanor Bishop, but through Don't Call Her Val to kill Clint Barton, and she didn't do it. Now, maybe Don't Call Her Val won't care because she'll just say, well, Eleanor's in prison now and wasn't going to be able to pay for this anyway, although it seems like the kind of thing where you get money up front. But Maybe Don't Call Her Val won't really care about that, but she will still note that this was an incomplete job, something that Elena walked away from. But it also tells Elena that she's going to have to move forward as, as a character, right? And she's going to have to grow from this because she shouldn't still be contract killing at this point. So Elena has uh, some redemption of her own and, and a redemption arc, I think, to go on. As much as we like this character... We need to understand that uh, what she's doing or what she's been up to hasn't necessarily been the best stuff because that wasn't her first meeting with Don't Call Her Val. So uh, at least it certainly didn't play that way in the post credit scene from Black Widow. So it, it certainly makes you think that Yelena has probably completed other assignments for Don't Call Her Val, and that may have included uh, some killings. And who knows whether or not those people were, were folks who actually deserved to die and were doing bad stuff or if they were people who were doing good stuff like uh, like Clint Barton was. So a lot more to learn about Yelena for sure. Um, and I'm excited to learn it because Florence Pugh is so great as this character and I, I can't wait to see wherever she pops up next. So we've gone through those three major confrontations from the end. We get another brief one at the end, but it's certainly something that has been the topic of a lot of conversation, although it doesn't need to be as big of a topic as maybe it got made out to be in some realms on, on social media. But it is a confrontation between Maya and Kingpin and Kingpin just saying what a surprise was great. Like what a surprise to see you alive, Maya, because I already ordered that you be killed. 
Maya does have a gun. Kingpin says that they are family, and sometimes family doesn't see eye to eye. The camera starts to pan up to take the characters out of frame. We hear a gunshot. We see the muzzle flash, and then we hear a thud, implying that Maya shot Kingpin. So that topic of conversation, wait a minute. Did Marvel Studios go through all the trouble of bringing Vincent D'Onofrio back as Kingpin just to kill him in this one episode? The answer to that is no, of course not. This applies to Kazi, but it also applies to Kingpin. Remember the old rule here, no body equals not dead. Not all the time, but generally speaking, you are not tied to the story having killed a character or really even having to explain that much of their survival when you don't actually show them dying, even though we saw the gun going up there and we saw that Maya was about to shoot him before it panned up. And we know that the gun was fired. And with that loud thud, Wilson Fisk probably fell to the ground. But as some have pointed out on social media, this is something that actually happened in the comics, that Maya shot Kingpin in the face and he survived. He was blinded for a little while, but he survived. So there is a basis for this in the comic books, and this is a kingpin who just survived an explosion, so I guess he could also survive being shot in the face. But if I'm being honest, Paul, I would rather find out that this was a warning shot. In the same way that Maya was willing to forgive Kazi, that Maya fired a warning shot, or maybe she maybe she did hit him, but she just grazed him and did so on purpose I don't really need to see Kingpin surviving an explosion and being shot in the head at point blank range in the same night. He is hard to kill. He's a very tough, very durable opponent, but he's not the damn Hulk. So I I think they got to be careful on the line that they want to walk here, unless we're going to find out that he already preemptively put some metal implant in his dome, the way that he sewed the arm or had the armor sewn into his suits I hope there's a better explanation for this than just, yeah, Kingpin survived that too. But regardless, however they choose to explain it, what is clear to me is that Kingpin will return, probably Kazi as well, but Kingpin is definitely coming back. There's no question that he's coming back. I've I've seen Vincent D'Onofrio kind of like, I don't know, I hope I come back. (laughs) He has to play it like that right now. Exactly. What's he going to say? The scene you just saw means nothing, kids. What what else is he going to do? Yeah, and not only that, but we all, the rumors were he was going to be in Echo series, and that only makes sense. And he is, if he's going to be in this Echo series, I'm assuming he's going to be the antagonist. There's no way he's going to kill him. I kind of feel it's going to be one of those things where we find out that he actually, you know, either takes it, you know, she fires it, but she misses him for whatever reason. Like he blocks it or because he like grabs her arm really quick. He's moved faster than she realizes, et cetera, et cetera, whatever have you. I, he, I don't think he's going to get blinded like in the comic books. It doesn't make really a lot of sense, um, at least in my opinion. Because, I, again, I, I'm going back where I think this is going to be the the main antagonist of the, of the series. And i got to be honest, too. I think... I don't think you bring in Vincent D'Onofrio just to even just to be the antagonist for Echo. I think he's going to be obviously a much more uh, well-established character as far as establishing the underground rules of the MCU. What we all kind of thought was that what he was doing in the Daredevil series 
I think we're going to see more fleshed out of why maybe Ronan was going off, you know, killing off all these different people. What does that mean for a kingpin? You know, we can't see a little bit in the series, but what does that mean going forward with the blip and things like that? Like, how does that affect, you know, underground crime? And can kind of almost set up, I think, maybe potentially Spider-Man films in the future, which, again, I'm not really spoiling anything by that, but maybe at one point that's what we're going to be getting from the films after this. It's a, maybe a No Way Home uh, episode or post-episode uh, we can talk about one day, Sean. But I do think that I don't think he's going to be critically hurt. I think this is only going to set up the fact that she's going to have to take him out. And I think also the Echo series and, and with Kingpin being introduced – you're gonna be there's a lot of different characters you can introduce now because of the series. I mean, the owl, uh, there's definitely you know, all these other different under hammerhead, tombstone, uh, even though they're kind of quasi Spider Man characters. Now, I got they're kind of hammerheads. Well, I guess he is technically a Spider Man character, but there's lots of other characters you can introduce in, in, in Daredevil's world and bring them over to Echo and other characters as well. So, I, I think there's definitely gonna be a lot that you're gonna be pulling from Kingpin. But he's going to be the big bad and not where it's, he's, he's going to be like the mega boss where it, she'll be fighting all these little bosses, I think, in her own series. But he's going to be the head honcho, but she's not going to get there. But I think this is going to be some kind of close thing where she almost kills him. And now she'll be on the run from him in her, her own series, taking on trying to, you know, kind of as she unravels more of the underground of the of the uh, MCU. Because let's be real. We haven't really gotten that really and I think that really, if you don't really count the Daredevil series, which is kind of loosely canon right now, if you if you don't take that out, what's really addressed the underground, you know, uh, organized crime aspect of the MCU? Not really anything besides maybe Ronan from Endgame and this series. Right. So there's a lot of rich storytelling and a lot of rich characters they can get to in the uh, in the MCU that with with this Echo series that I think they're going to do and I think you need that's why I think they brought the Kingpin back to be honest and Daredevil because I think there's there's a rich with with Moon Knight coming in where he's more he kind of is almost like Spider-Man in that way where he can be kind of on he was an Avenger at one point but he's on the Avengers or he can take on these mythical these mystical kind of characters, but he's also a street level hero too. So I feel that with the introduction of Dare, oh, with Moon Knight and with Echo, you need to add, introduce more of those, uh, those organized crime characters. And I think you bringing Kingpin back, you can do that really, really well and efficiently by having him as, you know, in the series or in the, in the MCU. So it all makes sense to me in that way. I, I don't think you kill him off or make him seriously hurt, by doing that, I think he either blocks it or something happens where he escapes. And then now it's an echo in her series trying to figure out who is tied with Kingpin and who she can take down, you know, leading up to him at one point. Right. I could see them going with the serious injury angle to Kingpin. If they don't want him to be the main villain in her series, if they want to put him on the sideline for a little while and, and put him back in another story. But I still think one way or another, He's going to factor in to the Echo series, even even if an injury is just why he doesn't necessarily show up in episode one of that series. And he shows up a little bit later on in the run. I think eventually there will be another confrontation between these characters. But then also you are going to have to have or at least I think anyway that you're going to have to have if he comes back also a confrontation between Maya and Kazi, but also just remembering that. Maya has been in this life. She's a young character, but she's still been in this life for a little while. And so there are other enemies potentially 
that she could have made along the way that might also factor into her series. So it'd be really interesting to see once we get a better sense of exactly what it is they're going to do in that series. But yes, if I had to put a bet on it, I'd say Kingpin is probably going to be a significant part of that series and will be a significant part of other stories in the future of the MCU. Because if there's one thing I am very confident in coming in, coming out of this episode, this finale, is that Wilson Fisk is not dead. Wilson Fisk will return and perhaps and probably return in several stories before his time in the MCU is eventually done. We then jump back to the wrap up of everything that happened at the holiday party and everything now outside of the holiday party. Jack gets an invite to join the LARP guild from Wendy Conrad, a.k.a. Bombshell. And Jack seems to be questioning it first, but he's totally going to take her up on that offer. And I think Jack is going to have the time of his life LARPing, which will get him a costume. And hey, he's already been in action, Paul. So even though he doesn't have history as the swordsman in the (laughs) MCU, he could have a future in that respect. So it's the perfect place for, look, him to continue honing his skills and becoming even better. And as we were talking about before, just get himself a a fancy costume and embrace that part of it, which sets him up for a future. Because I do think, as you were saying, I agree with you. I expect he will continue to play a role in Kate's life. And if you're in the life of a superhero, you never know when you may be called upon to act as a superhero, as Jack already did in this episode. And I think we'll do even more in the future. And then we cut to the conversation on the back of the ambulance, classic action movie style between Kate and Clint. And Clint says that he's got to be honest with Kate. It doesn't happen too often, but every once in a while you come across somebody that just makes you better in every way, as if it's a very nice thing he's saying about Kate, and that is what he's really saying. But then Clint jokes his way out of it. And that Missy boy, she just outdid herself with the costume, right? But then Clint sincerely says that he's proud of Kate. And I love this moment because it's a little bit of fun between the characters. It's Clint being a good mentor and partner, but an even better friend to Kate in that moment. And Kate knows that he was talking about her, but she also needed a laugh after all that she had been through that night. And so for Clint to give her the laugh that she needed, but then also that moment of sincerity and what that meant to him and, of course, what it meant to Kate... Uh, A a great little way to kind of button up before we head back to the Barton family farm, but just to button up the events of that evening with the holiday party and all the action that ensued. uh, It was a great way to close that out. Absolutely. 100% agree. And then we do go to Paul's favorite place in the MCU, the Barton family farm. It is (sighs) Christmas Day, and Clint Barton has made it home for Christmas. He missed most of the activities leading into Christmas, but at least he made it home for Christmas. And Kate is with him, and so is Lucky. We get uh, Clint just observes the look at the front porch of his house, which I really like because it felt like a callback to Avengers Endgame when he did the trial run of going back in time with uh, you know the space-time GPS, and he went through his porch, but he never actually got to go all the way in the house before he had to be taken right back out of it or never really got to see his family before he was taken out of it. And this time, Clint actually gets to stay for this family reunion. And Clint gives Laura the watch that we've been tracking throughout all of this. And Laura turns it over. And on the back of this Rolex, it has a shield logo on it. 
And it also has the number 19, confirming that Laura Barton is the mockingbird of the MCU because she was Agent 19 in S.H.I.E.L.D. in the comics. So there's no nickname. So I guess if you don't factor in the Agent 19 knowledge from the comics, I guess you could still argue that it's not part of the official canon yet that Laura Barton was Mockingbird in the MCU. But I'm going to go ahead and call it Laura Barton, Mockingbird in the MCU. Really, really love that touch. And it's something that I would love to know even more about. They could leave it right here and and never revisit the topic but mm-hmm. i really hope that they do because there are going to there's going to be at least one more season of the show and i don't think it will be all kate bishop because kate and clint are still together at the end of this show as they burn the ronin suit and kate goes over her ideas for her superhero name lady hawk hawk eve hawkshot <laughs> which i really like even though it's totally oh, dumb uh, i like hawkshot and then lady arrow And then Clint says, you know what? Actually, I have an idea. Clint's idea is the title that he doesn't get to say it. They give it to us in the title card form at the very end, Hawkeye, that she's not going to have a different name. She's going to be Hawkeye in the MCU like she is in the comic books. Clint Barton is Hawkeye. So is Kate Bishop. I love this ending, to be honest. And it's one of those things where I, I, I really wanted her to get, he was going to say the name Mockingbird. Uh, not Mockingbird, but um, Hawkingbird, excuse me, because I think that was Kate Bishop's original name in Young Avengers was Hawkingbird because she was a combination of both characters, I, I want to say, or something along, something along those lines. But I really w- I was hoping to say that name. I, w- I would have been a mega deep cut, but obviously he didn't. I did like I just I just loved how they ended it of of how he said, I got a name for it. And it, it was right to the, the name of the series. And I thought that was a great, a, a great way to end it, to be honest, uh, as far as that goes, uh, agent 19, I have some ideas for this, Sean. So bear with me. I I'm with you. I think they could definitely do some flashback scenes, <clears throat> excuse me, with showing them, you know, them working together or, or whatever back in the day. But I would take, I'll take it a step further. What if we got like a mini series animated show? Mm. about you know because i think she's also tied in with natasha and the red room a little bit and 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 barton making the call and all that stuff i think they're all tied together in some ways and they haven't shown us that and i think because these characters are aging let's be real uh you know jeremy runner looks good but he's getting a little long in the tooth for this stuff that's one reason why you have robert Downey jr and all these people don't want to they can't keep playing the character they're they're getting older and older but i think what if it showed me the the incredible animation that they've done and i can't wait for season two and i'm i'm an avid lover of it what if and i've gone i've defended it besides the the zombie episode which was atrocious um (laughs) but whatever uh i digress you're not wrong yeah exactly i'm not wrong um, so the thing is, I think an animated series would be fantastic because we all know we're getting the much under under talked about freshman year Spider-Man uh, right. series that's in canon. And that, that's going to be the first besides or excuse me, the second now, because what if it's technically in canon and with with freshman year, if these do well, which obviously what if it's done somewhat well, if it, if it did atrocious, I'm assuming that would probably not be back for a second season, but I don't know, but for sure, you know, that stuff better than me. They were Fresh- given the long lead times of animation. They probably bet on it and were moving forward with the second season, regardless <laughs> of how it performed. So I, I think 
the true indication of what's going on with what if or what happened with what if would be whether or not it gets a season three. But even if it doesn't, they would have some other explanation for it that would not tip right. uh, their hand as as right. far as how the show performed. So we'll never know. So, but yeah. So but that with all that said, if freshman year does really well, I think you have to seriously consider it because I'm pretty sure they've already I think Jeremy Renner voiced his character in the in the in the show in what if I'm not mm-hmm. I don't remember off the top of my head. He did. So with that, you you know, if if now it seems like um, the things with Scarlett Johansson and, and, and Disney may have gotten better. I don't know. But even if they didn't get her back, the voice actress for What If was fantastic. I'm sure, you know, again, I'm not I don't know the lady's uh, Barton's wife's name off the top of my head. I've seen her in tons of stuff. Linda I like Cardellini. Her a lot. Thank you. Um, and love her and freaks and geeks, by the way. Um, but the thing is, I think you could easily put and have a, a really fun mini animated series together, mini series like we're doing with freshman year with Spider-Man, I'm assuming because there's, there's a lot of world building you can do with this. And I think there's, a, that's a, a story worth telling that I, I think seeing Budapest, it would be awesome. I'm assuming Mockingbird as a part of that in some ways. So I think there's a, a lot you could do with this. And I think it'd be a cool thing to see on. It's perfect for Disney plus to be honest. So, that's where I'm going to go with it. I, I'd be down with flashbacks, live action flashbacks too. But I think to to really give this story, and I think why that she retires in uh, being a family, and that's important. You know, they decided to do that, <clears throat> and having Natasha in the fold as well as as a close friend. I would love to see kind of fleshed out over like four or five episodes of an animated series, and really give us a real good meaty uh, story of Budapest potentially. So. Or, or or whatever. So yeah. I'll pass on the yeah. I think it's a good idea. I would pass on the Budapest part of it because I think I've seen and heard as much about Budapest as I want to see or hear about Budapest. I like that there are just some stories that are the stuff of legend, even within a story. I like that better because a lot of times when you see that stuff, it doesn't ultimately live up to the legend in your mind. Like I think what Budapest is in our minds as fans is already better than anything they could actually put together in a live action movie series or in animation. And I think we've already, I think black widow already kind of summed it up for Budapest, a building explodes and then they fight their way out and then spend two days hiding. So I I don't necessarily know that I need to see that play out, but I would like to see Laura Barton and how she went from being agent 19 of shield to retiring and and that whole process of kind of getting off the grid to hide her shield her no pun intended secret agent life from just trying to have a life and and trying to uh you know be a, a wife and a mom and, and take care of her family and leave the rest of it behind I would love to see stories of that transition mixed in with a little bit of just some of what she was doing and the adventures that she was going on as Mockingbird slash Agent 19. And I think animation, I agree with you. I think it's a great option. And what I was very excited about when they announced Spider-Man freshman year was that they were finally going to have what if I know it's canon, but it's multiverse canon isn't the same as just straight up sacred timeline canon. Those are different things because you can always, with what if, wipe away whatever they do in that show by saying, well, it's in a different timeline. What about the main timeline that we pay attention to with most of the stories that we get in the MCU? 
can animation play a part in telling those stories? And it seemed like Marvel was resisting that until we saw the announcement for Spider-Man freshman year. So if they're willing to use animation to fill in the little corners, and I know you want to be careful about how much time you cover in the timeline, and you don't want to go back and fill every gap because those gaps can be used to go back and just tell other massive, complete stories that could be their own movie or live action series. So you don't want to cover everything, but there are some corners where you know you're just never going to go back to it. You know you're not going to make a movie where Tom Holland plays a a high school freshman, Peter Parker. So go and do that in animated form you know that you're probably not going to go back, even though they are capable of doing it. If they want to have a series that is a flashback series and they want to de-age Jeremy Renner and Linda Cardellini, we know they can do that. We've seen several examples of it in the MCU. So if they want to do that in live action, they totally can, but they don't have to. It is still interesting storytelling opportunities, though, that they probably won't revisit in live action in a big way. So animation Mm -hmm. is a great vehicle for that. If I were to suggest one other alternative besides animation or giving it its own movie or series, this would also be a great thing to a great reason to bring back the Marvel one shots, which they have talked about maybe doing now that they have Disney Plus the live action shorts that used to be coupled with home releases of Marvel movies if they were going to do a one-shot that showed an adventure with Linda Cardellini as Mockingbird and that transition into her life with Clint Barton at the famous Barton Family Farm, I'd be up for that as well. I, I think that would be totally cool, and there are some blanks there that are worth filling in, even if they are done in smaller ways and not necessarily the biggest ways that are possible in the MCU. So I would love that, and I, of course, love the end of this series and this last scene that effectively gives Kate Bishop the name Hawkeye to go along with Clint Barton having the name Hawkeye and they share a color scheme in their costumes. So yeah, they might as well share the same superhero name. We can't get out of here, Paul, without talking about the mid credit scene. And we figured we were going to get a mid or post credit scene because we tend uh, to get those and not all the time with the Disney plus series. And sometimes it's a little bit different, I thought maybe last week, at the very least, the mid credit scene would be a season two announcement like we got with Loki in that season finale. The mid credit scene wasn't really a scene. It was just Loki will return in season two. I thought maybe we would get something like that for Hawkeye, or maybe we would get something that would tease that Kazi or Kingpin was still alive after the scene uh, that we saw at the end of it or something else that teases the future for any of these characters. But uh, that's not what we got. Instead, we got a full song, a full song performance for Rogers the Musical. It started with a Happy Holidays from Marvel Studios message, which I thought was very nice and I appreciated. Yes. And then they show us Rogers the Musical, a full performance of the song is actually not titled I Could Do This All Day. I Could Do This All Day. It is Save the City written by Mark Shaman or Shyman with lyrics by Scott Whitman and Mark Shaman or Shyman. Sorry if I got the pronunciation incorrectly. Um, but I look, I appreciate that Marvel Studios did this. I know it's not the most fun for future gazing in the MCU of here's what's coming next. But look, fans said they wanted this. Fans said they wanted to see a piece of or an entire Rogers the musical. And I don't think Marvel was ever going to Maybe they will, they would, and they prove me wrong. But 
I don't think they were going to spend the money to do the entire play because I don't think they wrote an entire play. They didn't write an entire musical. They wrote this one sequence. But to give the Marvel fans, many of whom said they wanted this on social media, to show that Marvel Studios already had it in the works, that they had already filmed it. Hey, look, if we're going to do a sequence that shows Rogers the musical, we might as well film an entire performance of at least one song. And that's what they did with this Save the City routine. And I have to say, I enjoyed it. I Look, I, I loved it. I thought it was great that they did this. It's purely for the fans. Maybe not necessarily for every fan. Maybe not everybody wanted this. Yeah, but yeah. the post-credit scenes, the mid-credit scenes, they are extra. Sometimes they're super exciting for the future-gazing stuff. But sometimes they're just silly fun. And this one can go in that category for me. And I can very much appreciate it as such. And there are a couple of moments in the lyrics for the song that made me appreciate it that much more that didn't really come across when we were just watching Clint Barton and his family watch a performance of this back in the first episode, how in the lyrics of the song, they're saying Hawkeye seems cool, like a really nice guy. After they say all of these great things about these other Avengers, all Hawkeye gets is Hawkeye seems cool, like a really nice guy reaffirming the branding issue that Kate Bishop had said that Clint Barton had is that they make an entire musical about the Avengers, but they don't have that much to say about Hawkeye. But then there's also my favorite lyric in Save the City. Is there's a line toward the end of the song where they say, and it's the, the citizens of New York who are singing this. It's their line. If the city's trashed when you take your bow, we'll blame you then, but you're good for now, which is a perfect summation of the regular folks in the MCU and their relationship with the Avengers, that when the Avengers save the day and things are good, everybody's happy with them. The second that things don't go so well, then everybody wants to blame the Avengers for every problem in the world. Some things have been the Avengers' fault, to be sure, but a lot of things aren't. So I really appreciated that line, which would never actually be in a musical dedicated to Steve Rogers, but this isn't this isn't a real musical, so they can get a little meta with it. So I really appreciated that line. So thumbs up for me. Doesn't sound like you're going to agree, Paul, but as far as I'm concerned, thumbs up for the inclusion of Rogers the musical. I know why they did it, and I appreciate it just for that. Yeah, I'm not going to say much about it other than that. I, yeah, not my thing. And I think my main problem is two things. One if we would have gotten a actual post credit scene teasing something, I'd probably be happier with it. But at the same time, I'm like, whatever. It, it just went too long for me. I, I just didn't really, I'm not, so, again, it's not my thing. Don't want to drag on it too much. Some people loved it and that's fine. That's cool. It's, it's not, not my thing, but I did appreciate the happy holidays from Marvel studios. Very nice of them. So yeah, I not my favorite, but, at the same time, we've Marvel fans have, have eaten well this year. So this is if this right. is the biggest thing I'm complaining about, then then I'll be I'm fine with that. <laughs> right. I think that's maybe the best point about it is after everything we got this year. Yes. If Marvel just wants to take a victory lap with something super silly for this last mid credit scene of the year. I can't hold that against them. They've earned the right to do this. And really, it is a treat for a lot of fans who wanted, uh, who definitely wanted this and Marvel anticipating that if they're going to put Rogers the Musical in there as MCU canon, that fans were going to want to, at least some fans were going to want to see more. And they made good on that with this mid credit scene. But really, I mean, just going back to focusing on this episode, but really this entire series, we've been saying it, 
on repeat throughout these episodes, but it's just been true each and every week that week in, week out, scene in, scene out, this series has been so consistent in the high quality that they have delivered in the character development, in the storytelling, that it's been such a treat over these past several weeks to be watching this series. And I I loved this finale. I I wouldn't necessarily rate it as the best episode of the series, but that's okay because the other episodes that maybe I would rate above this, it's not because of faults within this episode. It's just the heights that were reached by the other episodes. And there were still some very, very high points in this one. I loved it. I thought it it provided the resolution it needed to and and the powerful moments that we wanted and expected and needed from these characters that these characters needed throughout their own journey in these stories and the stories that will continue in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So really, it's just it's hats off to Reese Thomas as the director of episodes one, two and six, Bert and Bertie as the directors of episodes uh, three through five. And of course, the entire writing staff, as led by Jonathan Nigla, did such a wonderful job and a masterful job, really. And, and of course, the cast, Jeremy Renner, Haley Steinfeld, Florence Pugh, Vincent D'Onofrio, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio Tony Dalton, Vera Farmiga, of course, uh, was outstanding as Eleanor Bishop throughout in this series. Alakwa Cox as Maya Lopez, Fra Fee as Kazi. I could just keep going on and on and on. The LARPing crew, everybody really delivered throughout in this series and they had us with them and certainly had me as an audience member with them step for step and I I really really enjoyed the experience that I had watching this series and it's one that is certainly going to be a frequent rewatch if nothing else it will be an annual rewatch because it's a new holiday tradition that has been created through this series which Iron Man 3 already part of my holiday traditions now Hawkeye This season will be a part of it as well, and I'm very, very happy about that because I have six great episodes of a Marvel Studios series to rewatch each and every holiday season and perhaps a few more times in between, uh, and that I very much appreciate. And I also want to give a shout out to, as always, the visual development team at Marvel Studios that is so instrumental in making these things look as good as they do including brand new superhero costumes for Clint Barton and Kate Bishop, both Hawkeye. So credit to the entire Viz Dev team as led by, for this project, Visual Development Supervisor Rodney Fuentebella. So congratulations to them and everybody involved in this outstanding series and Kevin Feige because this was a Kevin Feige production. So great job as usual, Marvel Studios. Absolutely, 100% agree. And that is it for our spoiler reviews for the year. We are done for the year for spoiler reviews anyway. I don't know when we get to next have a spoiler review. I'm guessing it's going to be Morbius in January because we don't have any Mm. other, uh, we don't have any Marvel Studios series announced between now and then. We don't have, uh, and we don't have any series actually announced officially with dates between now and and Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. But we will keep podcasting, so stay with us. Even when there are not spoiler reviews, there are other things to talk about. And coming up in the early part of the year, not immediately, because we need some time to sit with this Hawkeye series, as well as Spider-Man No Way Home, to properly evaluate them as we have the other projects that have come out this year. But we will be having an episode for the MCU Fan Awards, where we will be highlighting the very best that we got from Marvel Studios this year. So that's coming up 
in the early part of 2022. So something else you can look forward to. And if spoiler reviews are your thing, a reminder for Fan Show Plus, that's where we're going to be covering The Book of Boba Fett and Peacemaker. So lots of spoiler reviews on Fan Show Plus Ooh. in uh, starting, well, the end of this month and in the very early part of 2022. So lots of things coming up over there. You can check that out at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or search for Fan Show Plus or the MCU Fan Show channel on Apple Podcasts in order to subscribe there. And then just follow us in all those places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Twitter and Instagram. Paul, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at Herman22 with two N's, a.k.a. P-Thug. Please follow my YouTube channel, The Comic Band. Subscribe. Uh, also follow my other podcast, The Soccer Continues, uh, or Star Wars podcast. We're going to be doing uh, some big episodes coming up. There was a little bit of a weird, I guess, kind of a quasi-tease to a, a, um, a new project called Tales of the Jedi. And if you aren't familiar with that, that is a comic book series that I grew up loving. So I have a lot to say about that. So if you're a Star Wars fan, you're curious uh, what that is. I have a lot of uh, potential ideas for that. So uh, check us out there uh, very soon. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Sean Gerber. So for Paul, I'm Sean. Thank you so much for spending this year's worth of incredible MCU content with us and being with us for all of these spoiler reviews from WandaVision all the way through Spider-Man No Way Home and Hawkeye. We really do appreciate being able to share our experience with you uh, as we all just continue to follow this franchise that we love so, so much. So thanks for being with us. We'll see you next time.